from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you via Zoom, the whole crew. We've been doing it via Zoom for the last two plus years. Adi Weiner's over there looking like maybe a New York City hotel room. I'm not sure. Eric Bradlow, home office, if I'm not mistaken. Shane Jensen, home office. And this is Cade Massey in a satellite home office in somewhere in Texas. Good to see you guys. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday morning as usual. We've got two hours. We've got NBA playoffs. We've got NHL playoffs. In fact, we've got an NHL guest in Q4 trying to get up to speed on the NHL and many other topics to cover. Guys, why don't we just have an open topics Q1 old school? Let's go old school. What caught your eye? If it's COVID, great. If it's something else, let's do something else. What caught your eye in the big world of analytics in the last week? Well, the thing that caught my eye, and the reason it caught my eye is because I follow one of our former, our, you know, frequent guests during the COVID period, Eric Topol on Twitter, was that he tweeted about the new variant. Now, we all know about BA2, which became the dominant variant here. This was the last wave was BA2. But now he's identi- they've identified a cousin of BA2, BA2.12.1. And so what distinguishes it and why did it catch my eye? First of all, remember, BA2 was more uh, transmissible than BA1. It was also more transmissible than Delta and Alpha and all the earlier ones. BA2.12.1 is 25% more transmissible than BA2, so already there. The two things, the three things that should concern us the most, it can more easily escape immunity. It has a greater ability to infect cells. And here's the key one. It's more resistant to monoclonal antibodies. And this is another concern. It's got reduced immune, reduced what they call cross immunity with respect to BA1. So let me just translate. It's more transmissible. It escapes both natural and they believe vaccine immunity more. It has a greater ability to infect cells. And if you've had COVID already, you don't get as much protection. So mm-hmm. this is starting to sound like, again, I'm just reading from the table from Eric Topol's work. Um, that's sounding like something that's not a good development. How about that? Right, right. But this, oh, go ahead, Audie. Yeah, I'm just going to comment. If you actually read where the, the sources come from, the estimates of the, the uh, 25% are, are estimates. And those are traditionally quite crude and hard to get right. And mostly everything else comes from test tube analysis. So um, it's not exactly as if we're noticing all these things in actual people. These are things that are noticed in laboratory settings. And, and Adi, what's, what's the record in the last two years for how the laboratory observations translate to real-world observations? Not that great. And so that's really the sometimes and sometimes not at all. Um, so remember... That why, would we see, why would we see noise in that translation? Because there's a big difference between what happens in a, in a, in a, in a Petri dish or in a, in a microscope or in a lab dish than what happens in human beings. Um, and it's, there's just a long ways to go between those things. So I don't want to make this direct point, but 
even things like um, the reasons why we thought drugs like hydrochloroquine and ivermectin would be effective is because they worked well in a petri dish. Is that uh, right? Yes, they did. They weren't arbitrary guesses. Um, they were they were stuff that showed evidence of viral activity in, in a laboratory. Um, didn't actually turn out that much to work out so well in human beings. Um, so it's not that these are wrong. It's just that I, I just want to throw out that this is not like it's truth. It's just that these are these are hypotheses generated from laboratory um, observations. Well, no, they're true. They're true observations from the lab studies that they've done. The yes. question is, the, the comment we always talk about in all lab experiments is external validity, right? And so I think we believe, since these are very qualified scientists, it has high what we call internal validity, meaning it's measuring what it's intending to measure. Um, whether it holds to the field is a different question. Yeah, I, I mean, think, and, and in the article, I'm just going to add one more thing, Shane. In the article, I think Eric, and I think they would also comment that this is probably, maybe, I don't know, I would see if Shane and Adi, if you guys agree to this, maybe you would call this an upper bound in some way. Like, it's probably not going to be worse than they found in this laboratory setting, but it could be better. And I don't know, that's a hypothesis of mine, not theirs, that maybe this is an upper bound to how bad it could be. But I, I and just to kind of clarify, just look at this table. I mean, this is all about this BA, you know, this more recent BA five or whatever having greater transmissibility, escape from current, you know, kind of vaccines, etc. Correct. But nothing about hospital. It's nothing about the actual kind of long term health co- outcomes, right? So like but like that. The, the, the part yeah, that the vaccines actually still are the most valuable in helping us with which is oh, our, no our risk of death it. and hospitalizations there's no evidence that this new variant turns the dial at all on that oh yeah as a matter of fact shane it's a great point i, I left out maybe the most important point which you brought up which is the lower right hand part of the table that we're both staring at and the audience can look up if they want to follow eric topol just type eric topol ba.2-12.1 on your favorite browser and it'll take you right to the twitter article under hospitalization and stuff it ties to bd tbd they don't know. Right. So you're right. It could very well be more transmissible. But again, it might have no impact on hospitalizations and deaths. And I think your point, Shane, which is a good one, which is I think we've gotten to the point now where we're all kind of willing, whatever that means, willing to live with the infection part because it's not having the same translation to hospitalization and severe outcomes that we've seen earlier on. It's a good point. So uh, the other thing that caught my eye in COVID world is an article that our colleague at Penn, Paul Offit, who's a virologist, um, uh, really a comment that he published having to do with boosters. And it makes a, uh, a somewhat startling conjecture. And he uh, claims and he asserts that we should be cautious about extra boosting. The idea being that the more we boost with the original alpha variant, um, the less likely we're going to have a good response to future variations. Um, and that's uh, that's something good. You mean like the individual who boosts is likely to have a less of a response to to pre to future to future boosts that might be necessary. So in other words, he, he essentially said that uh, boosting is not something you can do willy nilly uh, uh, with an unlimited capacity. Um, well, we heard that. You remember, Adi, we heard that from a guest. Yes. Again, the guy, I forgot the guy. Yeah, Fagenbaum. We've heard, we heard this, and he hypothesized it. He didn't yes. know that it was. Are you saying there's no evidence that suggests this? Uh, may well, be hold on. This 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 makes me lament even more missing this show because I missed Fagenbaum, and I have not heard this argument. And I think willy nilly, 
captures very well my attitude towards no, no, no. additional Kate, boosters. That's exactly. No, Fagenbaum brought this up probably two years ago, and it's also something that we've been talking about just interspersed in this first segment is that's the one potential, there's maybe, maybe many, but the one serious potential downside of multiple shots, if it doesn't make sense from a statistical odds point of view, is when you do need it to prevent, will there be some interference? So, Adi, is there data that shows that this is now true? I don't think so. That's a very hard thing to accumulate. The second these are, person conjecturing. These are, these, are, these are observations made probably from some, um, some, some laboratory observation. Well, uh, these aren't independent either. These are both no. Penn doctors. So they may that's, be coming from the same so, seminar. So they do know what they're talking about. Um, they don't know necessarily it's truthful. But I think at this point, we do have a lot of data on boosting. And boosting is certainly a valid thing to do for, for the at first booster. There's lots of good data that it's a very good thing to do. Um, those of us who are over, certainly over 40, under 40, not, not quite as clear, but over 40, that third booster for sure. The fourth booster is the kind of thing, this, or the second booster, the fourth shot. That's the thing for which there is much less, much, the evidence is far more scant in the value of that. Uh, Israel did a lot of it, and they, and they saw, saw some benefits at the upper ages, ends of the age um, spectrum. So that's what I was going to ask. Do we think the practical implication of this is that what we may have eventually end up seeing is just a raising of the age for which that risk return trade-off happens? So maybe it's not 40, maybe it's not 50, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 70, but there yeah. will be a population that definitely should get the, the second booster, the fourth shot, but maybe it's not as wide as they originally thought. That's right. All right, I'm, I'm over. I'm officially over vaccinated. All right, so, so me too. On, on the COVID it. front, very little else caught my eye. The only thing I would toss out is a completely anecdotal observ- series of observations that there's lots of cases out there, and I'm 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 anecdotally tagging them all to people who've never got it before. Um, now that's probably a numbers fact, but. But uh, you know people who've been reinfected? Yes, okay. Many, uh, many, I, many, many people of my college-age son, many friends of my college-age uh, son, are now yeah. getting it for the second time, some even more than the second time, but yes. even the second time in the last six months. So the, the collegians, right. undoubtedly, absolutely, the young people. Uh, but I'm talking about people my age who have really in many, for two years, did very little, are now going out, and they're getting COVID. Um, and... Uh, and that's happening in large. I can, I can, I won't get yes. them on our show, but I can, I can think through my head a, a nice little half a dozen who, in, who basically spent two years uh, um, quite isolated, and now they've gone out into the world because everybody else is, and they're getting COVID. Can in we contact- all come up? Yeah, I have, a, I have an interesting. I don't know if it's interesting, but it's interesting to me. Maybe it'll be interesting to our listeners. If you all, let's take the the exemplar that Adi just gave, someone you know, roughly in their mid fifties. Obviously, that means Shane Young and in the prime of their lives. Um, I'm just doing that for paid myself and Adi's benefit. Um, but let's imagine the person just emerges now from this two plus year period. And let's imagine they go back to living their life the way they did live their life. What are the chances you think that individual would not, would get COVID in the next three months? Like what's, if you had to put a probability on it? Yeah. So would you put it at, at, at 80% or higher? You're saying no uh, precautions? No precaution. They're not wearing a mask, and they're just living the life the way they. What have, region they of the country are we in? Uh, let's say in the Philadelphia region. So they're a, a neighborhood friend of Adi Weiner. 
So I, I have one comment to that. Uh, about half the people, and this we have pretty good data on this, 40% to 50% of the people show basically no symptoms. So a lot of people, I think, will get COVID. I, I'd say argue 80%, but about half of those are just not going to notice it. Um, and so I would go with about 40% overall. But you're saying 80 contract it in the next three yeah. months if they go out without yeah. precaution. And about 40. I mean, Lisa- 40 wouldn't even people. notice. And among the 40 that do notice, what's the probability of uh, something serious? Uh, serious, oh, so, so serious enough to be concerned, uh, depending on their age. I mean, enormously depending on their age. Well, so, again, it, it's, it's your guys' age in Philadelphia. So someone my age, I think the probability of it being serious, very, very, very low, assuming they've been vaxxed and boosted. Very, very low. Um, okay, so I, I, but I like the spirit of Eric's question, which is fun. It's just at, a, at the highest level, just contracting. Un, no precautions, yeah. contracting in the next three months in the Philadelphia area. You say 80%? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of cases out there. If you're completely living your life normally, traveling, eating. Um, Remember the condition, you know, the marginal probability. Adi's assuming like I am that the person has not had COVID before, yeah. which would provide some degree of protection, right? Right. Um, so we're assuming all of that. And the person's, you asked Kate, person's not wearing a mask of some sort. The but they are, vac- they are vaccinated. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Some Even, protection, well, not I think, that much I, I think the thing we are getting enough evidence for now is that and this is, again, we've had many guests that have talked about this. They got punched drunk when the, for, when the vaccine actually prevented infection against the first variant, the alpha variant. But I think there's lots of evidence now that suggests its effectiveness against infection is modest at best. I think Adi put like an upper okay. bound on of like 25%. I think that's what everyone's saying. But yeah. certainly its effectiveness is really against hospitalization and death. Hey, but, right. but, yeah. Also, okay, huge good, good. number of people don't get any symptoms, and I, and this is borne out with some of my friends who were curious as to their serology state and went and got a natural serology test yeah. and were positive, and though they never had a positive. Yeah, test. yeah, I'm curious about that myself. By the way, I'm I can do I'm in your study, Eric. I'm in your study. I'm mm-hmm. a fifty something, never had it as far as I know, vaxxed, but essentially not taking precautions. I'll wear a mask on a plane, but otherwise, I'm eating in restaurants. I'm I'm grocery shopping without a mask. I am socializing. All right. Well, if you live your next three months an infinite number of times, I'm predicting <laughs> there's an 80% chance over that replication that you will get it. Now, on I this particular time, it's going to be a good stat lesson for everybody. It's going to be binary. Yes, no. So this, I don't want to get into the philosophy of probability, but there is, you know, the Groundhog <laughs> Day replication is what I'm referring to. Well, well you know, the case rate, I think the case rate is lower. I mean, I'm outside of Austin, in and out yeah. of Austin. I think it's lower than it is Philadelphia. I'm going to go lower. I'm, I'm lower than Audi, even in Philadelphia. But down here, I'm, we're talking about my life, my chance of getting it the next three months, um, uh, 67%. Yeah, you have to remember there's a certain fraction of people who just have immune systems that just will, will just say, fuck off. So excuse my language, COVID, um, and they just won't get it. And you could be one of those people. And I, and I would say that your 67% and my 80% are both in the range of we have no real idea, but they're both, <laughs> but it's not, a, it's not a tiny number and it's not with certainty. Okay. Okay. Shane, you want to check in on this before we go or you've heard enough? I mean, you know, I think I'm probably in the category of people, somebody that had it recently and didn't even notice, but yeah, I, that that's, uh, this all sounds about right to me. I, I certainly, I'm not, I, I'm not a, uh, doing anything uh, particularly uh, COVID uh, safe anymore. Well, I'm going to change gears for us then. Speaking of things that haven't happened in a couple of years, we had a, we had a very compelling Kentucky Derby, a flawless 
no controversy, <laughs> terribly exciting, one for the ages. This is the, the reason we watch sports, Kentucky Derby. I assume you guys took this in in some form or fashion. Oh, I did. My favorite part was the winner biting the, the horses that were leading them off. The, oh, my. The he was that. fired up, wasn't he? Oh, um, wow. I saw a picture. ready to go right back out there and do it again. <laughs> They're pretty spirited animals. <laughs> Their race racehorses pretty no, spirited. But, but I think the the point that you bring up, first of all, I believe I heard this stat. I'm sure we all heard it. Uh, Rich Strike, which won, was the second biggest long shot to win the Derby in the history of the Derby. And you start to have to wonder at some point. Like I, I just read out to our listeners what I wrote in the rundown. How could everyone have gotten it so wrong? Like how could an eighty to one horse? win the race now it could be lots of reasons one reason is so, that we have very sparse data and mm-hmm. these are young horses that's one possibility is that we're making predictions with very limited data the second thing is we have lots of data but the data we're collecting is not that relevant because they haven't run a horse a length of this race uh, a, a, a race of this length that's another possibility the third one is we have all the data we want it's very good data we just have the wrong model that predicts what kind of horse will win the race or not. The fourth is there's just such massive variation, day-to-day variation that, you know, it's hard to predict because there's just so much uncertainty that can't be resolved. And the fifth one, of course, is I just have to throw this in momentum. No, I just had to throw that in. <laughs> That's my story for yeah, everything. Baby. <laughs> uh, Eric, does your fourth one. So I want to ask you, why is this, why is it wrong? Um, it's we, was, was Nate Silver wrong that, Trump was a 30% chance to win the presidency, but he won it in 2016. Yeah, I would say, I would say that forecast, I would say that forecast was, well, it depends what uncertainty estimate he put around that 30% number. Um, If it had, you know, but yeah, well, I put up to me, 80 to one is a lot different than 30%. Let's roll some, let's roll some some dice. And I, I bet that you don't roll a one. Is that a bad bet? Um, you giving me a, a, even odds on that? Yeah, I'll give that's you a five a bad to bet. six. I'll yeah, it's a, f- a bad bet for you. Just just a few <laughs> minutes ago during the COVID discussion, you were emphasizing that even if you have a probability, it's going to be a binary realization, and it's very hard to tell what the underlying probability was from just like a single. No, no, I know, and I'm going to make. I, I make lots and lots of bets in my lifetime, and. Anytime someone gives me a one in six opportunity, like Kay just did at Even Money, I, I push didn't give you Even Money. Oh, guys, well, you guys. didn't say, and I asked you, and this you, you is, didn't I said, say. No, I said, I said five six. No, let, let, let's clarify this. You, you know, you, I'm going to get philosophical, but I think it's necessary here. That when you talk about what a probability is, you have to ask what is the source of the variation. We know the source of the variation in dice. That's easy. We know the source of the variation in cards. We actually know the source of the uncertainty or the variation, if you will, in an election. And that comes from the gap between our model, the sampling, and reality. And when Nate Silver says it's 30%, what he's not saying is that it's like dice. He's saying the data observables that we see and the messed up world that we have makes it very hard for me to make a determination. It's mostly against him, but still a big chunk of probability. Well, let's be clear, Adi. The, the thing different. that makes, and this is a great topic. I'm glad that we're, we're talking about this. I'm glad Kate teed this up. The reason why presidential predictions are hard may not be the same reason that horse race predictions that's right. are hard. And that's my point, is that 
for presidential, you get skewed samples, you get stated intention data, you get very sparse data. For horse racing, there's lots of things measured on these horses. It's ju- and, and no one's saying it's biased what's measured on these horses. The, the, the measurements are probably fairly accurate. Like, what was the time of their race in their last bunch of races? What was their maximum speed? But there's, but there's inherently random factors that influence a, both, like weather. Right. So the weather on the day of the race both influences the horse race no. and influences the election. Yeah, but you, got it, but you have to say, here's a question you should ask. Without getting new data, what would a smarter person do? And I'm mean, getting back to horse racing. If you had only the data that you have about all the horses, would a smarter person have realized that Rich Strike was not 80 to one, but was more like, you know, much more likely? Or was this just generally something unobservable here? Was it caused yeah. by what, what, what Shane's it's example? A nice, it's a nice heuristic. Something? I mean, and that's the way, I think that's the question. Did we miss something in our data? Or is this just one of those events where, where Rich Strike 99 out of 100 times is not going to win? But there's something got fired in okay, here's, but no, here's, quickly, here's, Adi, what here's, I wrote in the wrong. Hold on, Eric. Let me Sorry. let me respond real quickly Sorry. to this because I think this is a way of bridging Adi's comment with your question. The mistake, because I didn't I don't want to accept it as a mistake. I think mostly you're just being difficult, Eric, but I think it has led us to a, a good place. And because I there might have been a mistake here. And that was we knew less about this horse than we did all the other horses. It's it's there's a fund, there's 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 greater uncertainty about that horse. So the, the forecast, the distribution of possible outcomes should have been higher variance for that horse than it was the others. Just to remind everybody, this horse didn't, wasn't included in the race until the hour before the deadline. And he, so he, they were, well, these guys have to qualify for the, for, the, for the race. You have to run times and you have to be a top 23-year-old. This horse was not a top 23-year-old. This horse was 21st. And they came to the track, they trained, hoping that somebody's going to drop out. The last morning, somebody drops out and they got in. People just didn't know as much about this horse. And presume I'm making this up, but it seems to me that it must be the case. And if that's the case, especially in a race where there was no definitive favorite, maybe we should have regressed those odds some. This is, does it happen to what he says? Speaking of that point, listen, I listened to Jeff Cedar. We, We talked to him last week. I was practically out the door to bet on all the long shots because he was claiming that this is a much more even field than we've ever seen before and that we know less than we've ever seen before, which means that whatever's causing people to be a favorite and people to be an underdog, horses to be underdog favorite, is probably based on less data and more intuition than is deserved, which meant that the the section of long shots, the probability attached to the long shots, which is usually way less than what the, the implied odds are giving it, might in this case have been more sounds great in hindsight of course I didn't by the way I, I don't know why but of all the things that Adi has said on Morton Moneyball for the last eight years which I've agreed with some very large fraction of for some <laughs> reason I agree with 100 percent of what he just said maybe more strongly than anything he's just said I think we should have learned something from Jeff Cedar's uncertainty. I even brought up to Jeff last week that I was like, boy, it's surprising me that the favorite's like three or four to one. Like, I've never seen that in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think Adi's point, which is we normally put too much weight on the underdogs. I I could not agree more with everything you said. Well, so let's go back to the types of uncertainty for a moment. Some of the fancy terms are aleatory and epistemic. And there's some... there's some irreducible uncertainty. Like even if we knew perfectly what the true quality of the 20 horses, there's variation 
And there's things that are perturbations from weather and stumbles and things like that. You just can't forecast. And we'd put that all under, I, I think it's the aleatory. I think that's the, no, no, no. I think that's the epistemic. It's well, the epistemic. Epistemic is the piece that you can't reduce. Um, the, the 80 to one number, whenever the horse run won, the announcer real time said longest long, long shot ever. And that's what I had for a couple of days. I was thinking, why is it that this thing's been run 148 times and 80 to one is a longest shot to have ever won. Shouldn't we have expected two 80 to ones? Yeah, because, because what, what I said and what Eric followed up is that the actual probability on the long shots is actually much less than what the implied probabilities are. Okay, so 80 to one implies obviously something like 1.2% chance or one and a quarter percent chance. That's right. And the reality saying that much, much less. Like what? Oh, uh, at least half that. Why? Because they're just overbet. They're over. They, they're psychologically, over, people like to bet them. And they're overbet. And the and the books. Or, or the bet. Or, or is it that the lines aren't? They're not willing to set the lines at such long odds because they would be. No, the exposed. lines are set by the betting. The lines. Okay. Are, betting, they're set by the betting. So okay, you know, that's that's right. They're not. But in in uh, in like in sports betting, like the Leicester City, which won the the the. Uh, the, yeah, I would assume uh, there maybe was a cap on a lower bat, like sort of a cap on it, even right. yes. beyond but the, the betting. The implied odds from the were about one in five thousand, but anyone who asked would say, "Oh, it's zero. <laughs> I mean, it actually wasn't, but um, that's probably where the odds come from. If you ask yourself historically, just like in basketball, I love going right back to base race. What's the chance that the twenty-first best horse in the in the among that age group, three-year-olds, wins the Kentucky Derby? And the answer is really darn small. So you can probably do a fit between the one and 20 and see, and then try to guess at it based on historical. And I don't think any, I don't think you probably ever have seen a one and one, the, the, the worst ranked horse win. By the way, so, this is not, I mean, you can right. one easy analysis to do, right. Would be to imagine on the Y axis, you have the probability of winning and on the X axis, you have the actual at post race odds and you actually fit a curve to those two. Now, you could do it for the Derby, or you might want to group a bunch of races together. But, you know, just because a horse, like, this is back to Cade's question. Like, how much, like, what fraction of the time does a horse at five to one odds actually win the race? Is it 20% or 16%? Or is it actually like 8% or 7%? That's an empirical question. As a matter of fact, people fit these kind of curves all the time. Matter of fact, back to your work, Cade, earlier in the football draft, we could do the same thing for draft position. In the NFL, we could say, what's the likelihood someone drafted in a given place has some set of outcomes? We could use that to equalize across the different draft positions. I mean, in some sense, as long as you have what I call a temporal sequence where you have the draft on one side and the outcomes of the other or the odds at the start of the race on one side and the probability of winning on the other, fitting these empirical curves and seeing what the shapes of them are are really interesting. And they say a lot about the both the psychology of decision-making, but also possibly miscalibration at various ends of the scale. Yep. Well, we have a colleague, Eitan Green, who we've had on the show before to talk about um, umpires and balls and strikes, who has a study on uh, horse track bets and the long shot bias. And he basically finds that there's not really a long shot bias, that there's ways that the track induces bets and lets the smart money in late and the odds adjust. And he, he really looks hard for the psychological bias and finds that mostly it's a structural thing. So you're right, Eric, that you've got to look real closely at this stuff in order to make these kind of calibration judgments. One, one thing I'd ask you guys, I mean, speaking of probabilities and updating one of our favorite topics, what do you do with this horse now? 
So we're going on to the Preakness. Yeah, this is a great question. And this horse, I mean, this horse was obviously, you know, he did well late in the race. And so you might like him in the Belmont. The Preakness isn't as long as the Derby, if I remember correctly. It is not as long. That's correct. So not going to be as, not going to be as favored here, but like, did we, how, how much do we update on this horse? How freakish do we think that? Because what happened in the race was a really hot start. One of the hottest starts we've seen in a long time. And the jockey seems to have kept his horse under control. And then he had a lot left at the end and he was a late runner anyway. So do you update on the horse though? Did people have the horse wrong? What do you, what do you think in the Preakness? What do you think in the Belmont? Well, I think we have it wrong. The question is how much we have it wrong. Um, so I would, I would definitely move it up probably in the top five, but I doubt I would put him in the top two or three. Um, that would be my, my guess. Why don't we learned a lot? I think we still know less about the, all the horses though. So uh, it's, it's still a, it's a field. It's a crop of horses that just doesn't have the dominant. What about, we talked with Sater last week about, well, the trainer matters, the horse matters, the jockey matters. This is a jockey is another great story. The jockey had never raced at this level before. The jockey was racing in Cincinnati the day before. He comes down here and people give him credit for this great run. I mean, have you seen the overhead of the Uh, race? And he's just leaving. That was great. But also, Kate, you bring up another, a lot of great other points, which are, look, there's a lot different between the Belmont and the Preakness. First of all, less horses tend to run in the Preakness because a lot of the horses that ran in the Belmont that didn't do particularly well, they don't want to hurt the horse, damage the horse. They don't You're even run. the Belmont, but you mean the Derby. They, I'm sorry. I meant the Derby versus the Preakness. Sorry. And, and well, even less run the Belmont because that's a mile and a half. And that's, that's like the race of death there. So nobody wants to run that one unless they really think they can win. But you're right. I meant the Derby versus the Preakness. Number two, as mentioned, that it's a shorter race. Third, back to Shane's point, maybe it's a rainy day that day. We don't know what's going to happen on that day. Um, I would agree with Adi. I would put the horse probably around the fifth most favorite, somewhere in that range. I would be surprised if it's not 10 to 1 or 15 to 1, somewhere in that range. But let's just be clear. That's moving from, you said, uh, Kate, like a 1.25% chance to maybe somewhere like a 5 or 6% chance. So its odds have quadrupled, but let's not make it seem like it's got a 75% chance to win the race now. It might be the fourth most favored with an implied probability of 5 to 7%. Well, um, it, I will say this. Uh, horse racing is fun again, and it's been a couple of years, and I think that's probably a good thing. All right, guys, let's call that for Q1. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics. Rolling into Q2 now. Going to do an open lines segment here in Q2. We've got the whole team here, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and this is Cade Massey, all faculty here at the Wharton School, all collaborators, founders and collaborators of Wharton Moneyball for the last eight plus years. You guys can jump in here and join us. We love to hear from you. Twitter is the easiest way to get us. Our handle up there is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about sports, analytics, occasionally COVID, occasionally other matters. And we'd love to hear from you guys. Send us, we hear complaints, we hear ideas, we hear questions. Um, we love the feedback. Thank you. You can also hit us up by email. We have a mailbag, an email here. The address is moneyball at Wharton 
wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We get notes from you guys throughout the week. We read everything we get. We get as many of them as we can onto the air, and we appreciate your taking the time to write us. Please keep them coming. All right, guys, we've got hockey playoffs. We've got NBA playoffs. And so naturally, we're going to start with a little tennis update. Brad Lowe. Well, I'll just say quickly, just to build on what we talked about in the first quarter, Rich Strike winning 80-1. to If you had told people in tennis one year ago that Carlos Alcaraz, who at that time I think was ranked maybe 100 and something in the world, um, now this year in the tennis has the most titles. In the Masters 1000 that just happened on clay, here are the three players he beat in succession. Rafa Nadal. Kind of not a bad player. This was, sorry, this was in Madrid. This was the Madrid Open because it was in Spain. He beat the king of clay, Rafa Nadal. Not a bad win. Then he followed that up by beating the number one player in the world, the defending French Open champion, Novak Djokovic, in the semifinals. And then in the third match, he beat the number three player in the world, Alexander Zverev, in the finals. So besides the fact he's only, I think, the fifth player all time to beat Nadal and Djokovic successively in tournaments, um, he basically beat the top three players in the world. Federer's not really playing right now. On clay, forget 80 to 1. If you had told people a year ago, they would have said it's a million to 1 that this would have happened. Huh. Now, he is now, the, he was the 11th player in the world. I think he's now up to six in the world. And to me, besides it's a nice build on Rich Strike 80 to 1, this would have been a million to 1 a year ago. Is he now the favorite for the French Open? I mean, in some, you can't have him as the favorite, but Eric, you Eric, have to us, put him in the top three or four. Tell us more about him. In particular, how does a guy rise that quickly? Is he young? Yes. I so do. he literally just turned, if, if Adi, if we had talked on last week's show, you would have had to say he was 18. He yeah. just turned 19. Oh, my. And he's got four titles this year, including, remember, we talked about this. The Grand Slams are obviously at the top. The level right below that is the Masters 1000. He just won his second Masters 1000 event at the okay. age of 19. The only person to ever do it younger is Rafa Nadal. So it's not just that he beat Nadal, Djokovic, and Zverev, but he did it at age 19. Okay. Where's he from? He's from Spain. So this is yeah. another great Spaniard. So Nadal, of course, never likes to lose. Matter of fact, there's no one more competitive than Rafa Nadal, but he's like, this is great. We're going to get another 15 years of a great <laughs> Spaniard playing uh playing uh tennis and again to me the bigger question is looking forward yeah what odds do you give him to win the french i can't put him above nadal i mean 13 time champion you can't put him above djokovic who is the defending champion and also 20 grand slam titles i think he has to be the next favored person after nadal and djokovic he has to be and i'm guessing just guessing Nadal and Djokovic won't even be twice as likely as him. Like if they're, I'll make it up. If they're plus 150 each, he's maybe plus 200, 225. He's behind them, but not a huge amount behind them. They're not twice as one favorites as him. Eric, is there any, do people ever sneak up on people? Like, is there any chance that they didn't take him seriously enough or they weren't no, ready no enough? No chance, none. Yeah. Because he, again, he was now, at this he time of the match, he was number 10 in the world. It's not like he was number 150. Okay. And he had beaten, he had won three tournaments already this season, including a Masters 1000. So, no, there was no sneaking. And plus, everybody has anointed him as the next 
great. When, when, when did they start anointing him? I would say it was probably the U.S. Open last year, where I, as I remember, he made a run to at least the quarterfinals. And I forget, he lost to one of the top three players. It was either Nadal, Djokovic. It might have been Nadal that beat him in the quarterfinals. But he, he actually made a run to the quarterfinals of a major, where I think he had played at that time maybe three or four ATP-level tournaments, even at the time. So, no, at this point, no. He's not sneaking up on anybody. And, you know, let's see if he can win a major this year. So what do the, what do the age curves tell us about peak performance in tennis? I know they've moved around over time, but like how, how good should we expect a 19 year old to be relative to how good he will eventually be? How far away is he from peak? My understanding is that for men's, for men's tennis, it's different than women's tennis. I think when you look at the ELO ratings of the top players, I've gone back to this list many, many times. It's hard to find any player whose peak wasn't about age 24 to 26. That tends to be the peak for men's tennis players based on ELO ratings. Now, let me just say the all-time greats, Nadal, Djokovic was a late bloomer. You guys may not remember this. I think that Djokovic lost something like his first six or seven Grand Slam finals. No, by the way, he was playing Federer and Nadal. So let's not, let's not feel too bad for him. Um, if you don't win your first Grand Slam until you're like 25, 26, 27, you're not going to be an all-time great. Your, your heavy years to pack on the Grand Slams are probably between age 21 to 26 or 7. Okay, okay. But my comment is, is that I think that the greats are now starting to plummet, potentially plummet. I don't know. True. Which, which means they're going down faster than Alvarez is moving up, um, and, uh, which means that he's way away from his peak. Um, and, uh, and so I think we're going to see him get a lot better I think that we, he's, he won that, the, the, the tournament in Madrid because that's my speculation is that the greats are older now. They're way into their 30s. Um, they need to preserve their strength. They probably, uh, you know, they play far fewer. They, they, and I think the difference is between, we'll see a lot, lot stronger Djokovic and Nadal come out in French. And, and let's also remember, Adi, it's a, you could debate which way this is going to affect them. The French is best of five sets. This tournament was best of three. Now, on the one hand, you could say this is going to help him because he's going to recover faster. On the right. other hand, you know, everyone says, well, sure, you can beat Nadal in, you know, anyone can beat Nadal one game. Let's say you beat, let's say you beat him in a five-game match and the French. But I agree with you. There's no question they're declining. But even to say that a 19-year-old is better than, remember, who was number one in the world earlier this year? I'm saying I think he's a favorite over Daniel Medvedev, who was number one in the world and beat Djokovic in the U.S. Open and was in the finals against Nadal in the Australian and should have won. I'm saying he's better than Zverev. I'm saying he's better than Tsitsipas. I'm yeah. saying he's the third best player in the world right now. And I agree with you, Nadal and Djokovic are coming down, but he's still the third best player, in my opinion, you in think the world. So? And I that's impressive. I do. I do. Play, but on, on the other surfaces, too? Really? I No, no, I don't think so. I think the players with a massive serve would still give him problems on the harder surfaces, but he's clearly a top 10 player on any surface. All right, guys. So speaking of best of five versus seven, best of three, the second round of the NBA playoffs in three out of the four cases is to down to a best of three. We've got two twos across the board, except for the Warriors were able to Eke out, not even eke out. They took they took the Morantless Grizzlies to the cleaners last night to go up three one. But the rest of the series are two twos. So what has caught your eye in the NBA playoffs? That those uh, other three series are at two two. <laughs> no, I, yeah, that's. But also, 
you know, this is the question I always have, which is, you know, you know, I'm going to bring up momentum again. Does it matter how you got to 2-2? Two, two? So, for example, um, the Celtics and the Bucks, I think, have, I don't say they've split them, but I, they're 2-2. Two, two. But I, no team has won two in a row in that series, I believe. The I think Boston just won two in a row in Milwaukee, did they not? Do I have no. No, no, no. They split. They split the first oh, two. They, 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 they had... split in both locations. Now, it could have been it went loss, win, win, loss. That is possible. As a matter of fact, I think that's probably, I mean, for the Bucks' point of view. I think the Bucks lost the first one. But either way, yeah, okay. the Sixers Ultra clearly win. lost the first two in Miami, won the next two. The, uh, the Mavericks lost the first two in Phoenix, won the next two at home. So how much, I know Adi's going to say none, but I might as well put it out there anyway. How much extra probability do you give the team that's 2-2 that has won the last two versus 2-2 and you split it in some non-2-2 order? Well, come on. Non-stationary momentum are different. Let's have that conversation. The uh, the Sixers lost uh, to the Heat without Joel Embiid. With them, they're much, much better. So uh, um, I think think, – the two in a row for the Sixers matters more only because it's more evidence that they're the much, they're a better team with Joel Embiid than without. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an obvious non-stationarity, whether or not he yeah. stays in on like stays, you can stick it out for the next three games and, 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 be, and no, be, general, be as. Right. So another, a softer version of non-stationarity is that a team figures out another team strategically. Yep. And yep. I think between and, and a, a softer version is also, well, it's not a big high profile injury like Embiid's going out, but other things might be going on. Somebody's got nagging this or nagging that, and then they get healthy. So in general, I think there is, I would bet on there being information on streaks like that, but not psychological information, some, some kind of structural information. So, so uh, uh, Maddie that just tossed out at the minus 2.5 for the heat. For tonight, that's, assuming yep. that's the game, is that game is in Miami. The game is in Miami. That, what was the what were the what was the Heat in Game uh, Two in Miami? Does anyone recall how, how favored the Heat was? Yeah, right. I think it was six. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So yeah. that's that Embiid has factored in a heavy amount, and I don't think that's because they won two in a row. Because I think they they've verified that Embiid means stuff. Stuff he can play with, with his orbital fracture, with his broken thumb. Um, obviously, so I just want to translate what you're suggesting to our listeners. You're suggesting, let's say Embiid had not played any of the first four games, but the mm-hmm. Sixers had still won the last two games with exactly the same scores. So all the information, quote unquote, is the same, except Embiid hadn't. You would still think it would be Heat minus two and a half. No, I, I, no, I would have gone back to minus six. Or okay, minus or not, 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 not minus okay. six, but like I think you'd probably yeah. pull because I, I, I think sort of non-stationary that. It is a true stationarity that's mm-hmm. easily attributable is more predict you know at least in people's minds i think is more predictive than non-stationary that is not as attributable like that's i mean momentum. it's pretty obvious here <laughs> that Embiid is the factor that is different wow. now that that the, the non-stationary factors whereas if it was some more wow. subtle kind of change in strategy by the way uh mea culpa matt just put on the screen here there were minus 8.5 so there are a six-point difference. Can someone just give us a sense, by the way, of what's the difference in prob- implied probability of 8.5 versus 2.5? I mean, it's got to be what, 70, 30 versus 55, 45? The, the standard deviation in basketball. I wish I knew that one off the top yeah, of my we head. Should, I know that for football. We should know that. It's not one that I know off the top of my head, but I would guess it's something of the order of about eight to ten points. 
So yes, if, yes. if that's true, that would make it roughly 70-30 for game two and maybe 55-45. No, even. way more than 70-30. If it's one standard deviation. Oh, you're saying it's 84.2, 84-16. Like yeah, All right. Uh, guys, speaking of probabilities in NBA playoffs, I don't understand the 538 odds right now. So I, maybe I'm wrong. To, I just know the site, so I go there. They've got a clean little chart that gives us probabilities of advancing to each round. It's based on their Raptor model. Um, they've got power rankings and SIM results. So right now, they have the Suns as 50% chance of making the finals. They have the Celtics as 50% chance of making the finals. Making the finals, just making, to be clear. But making the finals. These yeah. teams are both two and two against legitimate opponents with very legitimate opponents in front of them if they make it out of this round. Yeah, there's no chance. There's no math that leads to that as being reasonable. Well, the, we do, there's the, none. The math is 0.7, you know, basically 0.7 in both, in both rounds. Yeah, but come on, how can they be? I mean, yeah, I, let me ridiculous. do I'm just trying to just This is my question. Myself. No, no, I agree with you. Think to myself, I'm sure it'll be obvious in a second as I think about it more, which of the point sevens bothers me more? The point seven that they're going to win this round when they're tied 2-2, or the point seven that they're going to beat the Warriors, it looks like, in the next round? Um, I would say the point seven that they're going to beat the Warriors in the next round bothers me more than the point seven they're going to win in this round. Well, So let's just unpack what you're playing with. One is the quality of the opponent. And yes, the other yes. is the length of the series because yes, yes. They, the, the Mavs are not as strong as the Warriors, but they only have to win two out of three, not four out of seven. So right. that's what you're pitting against. And you I'm, say also, the- I'm also looking at how the Warriors have looked and played. Yeah. And I think just the overall talent level of the Warriors is much higher than the talent level of the Mavericks. I mean, it's possible that a better team. Yeah. Right. I mean, do you really think the Suns are even a favorite? They'll have no court, but other than home court, will they be a favorite against the Warriors if they make it through? If, they, if both teams make it through? Yeah. So, again, you, you have to get to 50 percent somehow. Um, you could make it 80 percent, 60 percent if you'd like, if you want to believe that number. So, I mean, if you're not going to make now, the, now, now 80 well, percent to, to win a two out of three. I mean, I know, I know, 538 that. does break it down, actually. So they've got a 70 percent chance of making it to the conference finals. Or sixty nine. Oh, yeah, you're right. Chance. They give us. They give us. Oh, so it's seventy seventy. So seventy. It's basically seventy seventy. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. That's same just... thing with the Celtics. Seventy one percent right now. Okay, so seventy so. seventy both ways around. Yeah, super. Well, it just undermines confidence in the model. Um, I need a new site to go to for go to NBA. I, I know. Let me just ask a question also related to the NBA as well. So we just saw at least it hasn't been officially announced, but we're pretty sure Nikola Jokic on the. Uh, Nuggets won his second straight MVP award. And of course, that means Joel Embiid came in second for the second consecutive year and did not win. Is there, Cade, is there any value in saying Embiid's going to come out on fire tonight? He knows he didn't win the MVP award. And now you're going to see the angry Joel Embiid, the I got a chip on my shoulder, Joel Embiid. Is there any rationale for that? Or is that just storytelling? Oh, I, I, I believe that that happens. To, to believe that that doesn't happen is to believe that every player is maximally motivated right. every game in their career. Yep. And that's a super naive view of humanity, I would say, even professional athletes. There is variation. There's variation in motivation. And, you know, presuming he cares about that. Especially I mean, he's if- already 
obviously carrying a tremendous amount of motivation already. I'm not sure that this MVP snub, if you, if you want to frame it like that, is going to turn the dial. Because uh, given what he's already kind of doing, which is carrying a team on like with a serious injury, does this MVP thing have moved the dial on top of that? I'm not sure. Because he's already, as far as I can tell, at the kind of maximum motivation here. It's a but good it's question. To... There may be a ceiling there. Sure, maybe, sure, maybe, sure. maybe the there is now, a, yet another level for him. Yeah. But I do think there is sometimes a naive view that um, professional athletes are maxed out in their motivation all the time. And especially with the effort, there's these effort games, like, yeah. you know, in-game effort. It's hard to see in-game effort in baseball. There's, I can imagine there's a bunch of off-field, off-season effort involved, but hockey and basketball where, you know, rebounds and defense are so effort sensitive. Speaking of which, did y'all watch that uh, Celtics Bucks game last night? It's just, I mean, at one point the announcers say, "What's the what's the league record for most bodies on the floor?" There were bodies on the floor all over the place. Al Horford went off for thirty points, including a, a move from the top, taking Gian, Giannis to the to the bucket. I mean, it was really spectacular. Yeah, no, I thought I, you know, it. Ha- I have to admit, it made me wonder where was that Al Horford when the Sixers needed him. No, um, they didn't use him right. I mean, he, I mean he's, he was that way with the Celtics, then he wasn't with the Sixers, and now he's that way again with the Celtics. I no, mean, I, I, I agree with that. He looked really good in the game. And if you actually watched the first three quarters of the game, you would have said, Bucks go up 3-1. I guess this mm-hmm. series is over, but they play four quarters, not three. And let me just say, I, I downgraded, after I saw that fourth quarter of the game, I, again, Middleton out is a big deal for them. Big, big yeah, deal for, sure. for them. Yeah, right. But I've downgraded the Bucks as a, I'm not saying they can't win the title. They can win the title, but they're not a heavy favorite. They're not a heavy favorite in my view against the Heat Sixer winner. And I'm not even sure they're much of a favorite right now, even to finish off the Celtics. So I, I'd put them maybe a slight favorite in each of those series, but not much. And if you had asked me before the playoffs started with a healthy Middleton, that's the one team I would have said is, is the most likely to win but mm-hmm. i'm not if they are now they're only the slightest of favorites in my view mm-hmm. um what about in the west with the mavs coming back from that 2-0 hole against the suns and the suns were so hot i thought of coming into this and what do you make of all that i think that uh is it pre- random or is non-stationarity well i i'll give you the one significant predictor I think Chris Paul has had two of the worst games in his career and he's had them in the playoffs. You know, the first game of the third game of the series, the first one they lost, he had seven uh, turnovers in that game. And I think, I don't know, one or two assists. And the last game he fouled out. And I think it was the third quarter. He had five points, five assists and or five points, five rebounds, seven assists. Chris Paul can't play terrible for them to win. Mm-hmm. 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 So uh, I made this point at the end of the, or during the first round that these things often end up going towards the favorite, even though they look much closer, pretty close. What do you guys think of the, in this, in these, in these, uh, in these four, these four uh, rounds, four matches that are in mid play, how many of the favorites are going to win them? I'm going to keep that in shock until proven otherwise, man. Remind us, remind us who the favorites are. Yeah, that's the question. So is it, well, I mean, Miami, Miami's a favorite. I mean, I mean, the thing is, Celtics Bucks were like a couple points. Of, I mean, we're we're at the point now where chalk doesn't really, you, you know, like we're pretty well, evenly matched, right? So it would have to go Miami. It would have to be the Bucks. It would have to be the Warriors. Boston was the two seed technically. 
and the Suns. No, I think no. I'm I'm like the betting line is what I want. Oh, who's the higher seed between Memphis and Golden State? Memphis. I I thought Memphis was the yeah. Memphis is the higher seed there. Yeah. Um, So I think I think your I think your chalk comment was really insightful and on for round one. And not so much. As Shane says, the gaps just aren't as there as much for round two. Especially this season. Completely agree. Especially this season. Okay. All right, fellas. Well, that's been another quarter here on Wharton Money. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. Show up and go up on Wednesday. We're mid-NBA playoffs, mid-NHL playoffs. We talked last quarter about the NBA. We're talking next quarter about the NHL. We have a great interview with Mike Kelly, NHL analyst and, and analytics guru, Mike Kelly. So we'll talk a little NHL next time. We can do baseball here, fellas. we got a short quarter, 15 minutes or so on baseball. I want to start out with what caught my eye in baseball, and that is Otani at Fenway, which mm-hmm. we're going to forget because it was late last week, but it was all headlines last week. He did something. It's I mean, you got to stop and note when, he, when a person does something that they say, has it been done since Babe Ruth in 1919? And that's what they said about Otani, and that's before he stepped out on the field. It has been that long since a pitcher at Fenway has batted in the top four of his, of his team's lineup. And that was what Otani was set up for. And then he goes out there, he strikes out 11 guys, two hits, one of these hits to the wall, knocking his number. Are you kidding me? Is this a movie? If it happened in a yeah. movie, we'd think it was cheesy BS. This is just Honestly, unbelievable. He's, yeah. he's, he's by far the most exciting player in baseball right now and it's even even against my team it's kind of delightful to watch him do what he does i mean it wasn't that delightful against the red sox though everybody's doing it the red sox these days but um but yeah no i mean otani is i mean again he's he's unbelievable he's probably you know i don't know but probably it's probably too uh too early to start talking and comparing war numbers and stuff like that for this season but yeah he's like you know, he's got like a three ERA in five games. He's hit six home runs. I mean, the guy is just unbelievable. I mean, top, top 10 ball player on both sides of the plate or, but you know, right. offensive end uh, hitting and pitching. We should be celebrating it. Every time he pitches, we should be celebrating it because it, we just haven't seen it at all. So we, if we way- had to, if I was going to say, if we had to forecast, like, let's assume he can't do this for the next, remember he's not 20. Let's also comment that. I think he's 27 or 28. Mm-hmm. So let's assume he can play in the majors for 10 more seasons. Which one does he stop first? Does he stop hitting first or does he stop pitching first? Probably pitching. I would, I would guess there's a wider range of injuries that would keep him from pitching effectively mm-hmm. than hitting effectively. Mm-hmm. But especially now that every team has a DH as well. But, um, but I mean, I, that, that would just be my guess. I mean, I, I think pitching injuries accumulate more quickly or, or at, uh, you know, with greater frequency. And I think pitching effectiveness is more, it's harder to kind of, you know, go, you know, battle through injuries while you're 
pitching as well. Shane, I love your answer. That sounds solid. I'll go with that. I just want to add one thing. We must know something about performance as a function of age and how that difference for differs for pitchers versus hitters. And I'm guessing you can keep hitting longer in life than you can pitching. Maybe I had that wrong. Maybe that fast twitch is more, more important as a hitter. The thing yeah. about the thing about pitching is you can adapt. See, if you're a hitter, you don't become a different hitter later in life. That I, I can't yeah, even think of a thing. Okay. What you do see is pitchers change, and they become a different pitcher than they were earlier in their career. They generally have much less heat, and so they get smarter. Look at Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, right. He throws, you know, it's 91, 92 now, and yeah. he's a different pitcher. You know, they're 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 smarter. They're they're. I mean, look at uh, you. Just don't get. You, you can become uh, in and a lot of the longevity in pitchers is because you learn to be a different pitcher. And there are a lot of them who do it. So uh, I, I agree with Shane. I think on, on balance, that's the, probably the best answer. On the other hand, how many aging sluggers have done well into their past their mid thirties or even in their early mid thirties. We used to see that all the time, uh, but we see much less of yeah. that. And that's maybe because the pitchers throw so hard that it's hard for why well, I, I, I think we know why hitters are not aging quite as gracefully into yeah, their yeah, life. Like, I think we know why that's no longer happening, but, but I agree with you that pitching is more kind of proactive hitting is more reactive. And so there's more you can do in a strategic. I sense. think yeah. just Otani I, could end up on the Astros five years from now and, you know, probably get into whatever the Astro, whatever the latest in Gorilla Glue is then and, uh, and, and have like a renaissance. I will look up age curves in pitching and hitting for next week's show. Um, I, if I, but my intuition is the same as Adi's. I think there's more pitchers beyond the age of 35 that are still highly successful than there are hitters, especially power hitters or even all think, hitters. Think about it today. Can you, can you list how many power hitters above 35 can you list who are really good, right? Carrera is not there's a shell of himself. Pujols is a shell of himself. Pujols became a, sh- a shell of himself. Absolutely. Yeah. How old is Evan Longoria now? He's about that, probably. Right? Yeah, he's not. He's right, in, right in that range. Okay, yeah. super Paul, Paul Goldschmidt's probably not that old yet. I'm going to say, given how valuable this guy is and advances in sports science, that maybe they can keep the injuries at bay. I'm going to go with pitcher. I'm going to put my money right now, based on what's been talked about here, on pitching right. hits. Um, guys, let me just note that Fangraphs, my go-to for baseball numbers, still has the Angels at like 70. I know it's early. This is ridiculous. But 75, 76% chance to make the playoffs. But it's only as a wild card team. So I can get to watch them like play one game and hope that they make it into Well, the a- wild card round's a little bit longer now, right? Isn't it like it's like a best of three now, isn't it? Like it's not a full. No, there's oh, just because there's multiple wild card teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all, now- all just one game series or something. But then they pop into – you just wanted to make it through. Anyway, I'm going to be pulling for the Angels to make the playoffs for the first time in forever just to watch that guy and Mike Trout play. What else around the world of baseball? Audie's sitting up there in New York about to roll out to Yankee Stadium. Going to watch him take the, play the Jays. Can the Jays stop this machine? That the yes. Yes, the Jays are good. I've tried to be unbiased, impartial observer of baseball despite my fan tendencies. The Jays are an extremely good team. So. Which pitchers are you getting to watch start the game tonight? Uh, uh, Eric probably knows better than me. I, I believe Severino is starting for the Yankees. I do not he, know. Severino starting. is definitely uh, here. I'll just look yeah. it up. Severino, I know, is pitching for the Yankees and for the A's. It is. Oh, I thought it was Jays. Okay. No, it's, it's the Jays. Jays. You say Kikuchi. So okay. you have to remember the Yankees. They were they they they're on fire sometimes at the plate and sometimes they're cold as ice. And the last three games, 
they did not look very good at the plate. They did not drive runners in. They weren't hitting the long ball. Um, you know, they scored what four four runs in three games. Eighth in the ma- they're eighth in the majors in OBP. So yeah, I it, guess that, you know. But it comes in spurts. I mean, they had a number of games in a row. They were scoring eight, nine, ten, and then all of a sudden they dry up. Obviously, this is just chance variation, different pitchers. Different no, pitchers. it's true. So so you have yeah you have this risk of them winning two to one versus eight to one. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's what's been happening. Adi didn't say they did win two out of those three games. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, they, they, they limit their, their, their opponents like one or two runs. So it's like, Every you time. know, do they, it's, it's, it's more for like fantasy purposes that you worry about right. their offense. But yeah. Right, exactly. Fantasy purposes. <laughs> I, I, I want to draw attention. I mean, the Yankees are really good, and I don't want to talk about them too much. Let's talk about another team that we should talk a little bit about on the opposite end of the spectrum which is the Cincinnati Reds. I just oh, no. want to kind of bring wow. bring that in right now. The Cincinnati Reds are currently at 6 and 23. They're actually they've won 3 of their oh, last Oh, so they 10, won so about yeah, so say yeah, they, 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 they three three of those six victories have come in their last 10, but they are 6 and 23, which if you you know kind of scale that up over the whole season would be a 128 loss season, which <laughs> is well above the modern record. What's the modern record? 120 losses. The expansion yeah, 40, Mets. The, yeah, the Mets. The six. The expansion Mets won 42. Oh. 42 and 120. What year was that? 1962. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the By Reds the way, are. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, early season. And you, I, you know, again, I, you want to shrink, obviously, towards the mean and everything like that. So I'm not saying that they will maintain this pace, but if they maintain it, they are looking like a historically bad team. Hey, look, I, Shane, we might as well do what we always do with everything. Let's all come out with predictions right now of how many games the Reds win. So I'll give my prediction. No, make losses. It's more fun. Right, how many they're going to play? Well, I can do the math, too, and losses. All right, losses. Um, I, I would have predicted them to have 40% wins at the beginning of the season, so 64 and 98. I will shrink higher than that. I will say 110 losses. Oh, my goodness. Big That's my guess. 105, 106. I'm going to go with 115. They are a terrible, terrible team with no real kind of apparent. I, I don't think they're going to get any better. I mean, they'll, they'll probably, you know, what remaining, you know, pieces they have will probably be sold at the deadline. So what, what do I need to be low man here? I just want to be low. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going 105. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to go 104 and steal it. From <laughs> the fan graphs from projection uh, is, is 95, 90, 95 guys. No so, way. They, well, they, they, that must be start a season. No, projected full season. So, I mean, um, they, you know, they really have to. There's a lot of noise. Wait, 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 95. That means I mean, they'd almost 60, have to become a winning that 67 that wins. That's yeah, 61. That's 61 and 74 or something like that. The remainder yeah. of the 61 of and, 61 and yeah, 72 I mean, the rest of the season. No way. I'm all for, <laughs> I'm all for shrinking a bit yeah. to the mean, but uh, that's, I'm going to figure out how to bet against fan grass. Well, right I have now. to Chuck. We've already decided to Chuck 538's Raptor for NBA. Yeah. Now I got to Chuck fan grass for MLB. I'm, I've been market for new. By the way, Matt just put up on the screen there beginning at the end of the beginning of the season. This is why fan graphs, what it is was I, predicted much more there were 74 and a half wins projection at the beginning of the season so that's a 45 almost 500 almost 500 teams so you know now we're downgrading them to like a 300 team so that's i I don't know i'm still liking mine over fan graphs but i might like Cades over mine and we kind of you know i mean one thing that i'm going to continue to do as the season goes on is kind of track 
potential future Hall of Famers. We've already, you know, I think we're all kind of interested in that topic. And the Reds do have one, Joey Votto, but he, like the Reds themselves, is having an absolutely terrible year. He's a case in point for what you're talking about earlier with, you know, kind of aging sluggers. It's, okay. it's, he's like batting like 122 or something like that right now. It's, it's not pretty. Okay. So anything else on that ML, the hall of fame stuff, you guys, is this a conversation we need to have now? You want to hold off? We got some, I mean, well, I, I can just kind of have to get, you, you know, I mean, you know, on the pitching side of things, the ones that kind of are always sort of like, I'll be kind of watching as the season goes on is Granke, Kershaw, Verlander and Scherzer, and all of them are, are having great seasons so far, actually. You know, uh, I mean, Kershaw's got a 1.80 or a 4-0 record. I mean, you, you know, so the pitchers are doing quite well. Some of the aging sluggers are... Is there any chance Verlander doesn't there. make the Hall of Fame? I mean, is that... No. Is that- no, no, absolutely. No he, he, he could retire tomorrow. And he'd lock. Be Hall of Fame. Total He's a lock. lock. He's a lock. Total lock. There's about at least five locks on the Hall of Fame currently playing, in my view. At least 99.5 in probability. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's. I, I might even expand to six or seven. But yes, yeah. I mean, certainly he is. Regardless, he is one of the Hall of Fame locks that is currently playing. Well, I mean, this, got, is fun, this is a fun thing that Adi brought up. I think it was Adi a few weeks ago. It's like we shouldn't just think about this once these guys are on the ballot five years after they retire, whatever it yeah. is. We should be thinking about it now, yes. so that we go out of our way to enjoy them while they're playing because we get exactly to watch them right. while they're playing. If you've got yeah. six guys that are locks around the league. We should be anytime Kershaw pitches. We should be watching the game that night. Yes, well, we should exactly. Uh, Pujols is a lock. Verlander's a lock. Kershaw's a lock. Um, uh, Scherzer, a Scherzer, lock. and Granky, I think, are locks. Scherzer, uh, lock. Granky, Grock. Uh. Cabrera. Is Trout is a lock. Trout's a lock. I mean, let's say let's say Trout Trout has a career ending ending injury next week. Lock. Be lock? Still in. Still in. Lock. Really. Yeah. Scott, he's got more war than Miguel Cabrera now. How old is he again? Remind me. Trout is like 31 years old. 30. Yeah. 30. 30. I had around 30. Okay. He's accumulated war like at like twice the pace of most most yeah, of the other know, locks we're talking about. You don't get into the Hall of Fame based on war. So talk about you want to talk about OPS? He's way higher than all these that, guys in OPS, too. It's a combination of factors. It's the, it's the Hall of Fame. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, I happen to agree with Shane. I well, think what, what, even what, if he what, never what played What did Miguel Cabrera game. do better than Trout at any point in his career? Uh, have a longer career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. We talk about peak and duration with these Hall of Fame guys, for sure. Uh, well, he's had 11 consecutive great season 10 consecutive great seasons Mike right. Trout well, probably I mean the, the person to turn top, to the, top five MVP, MVP is entire every single season yeah, I mean the analogy would be Koufax Koufax retired at after 10 seasons at like age 31 and was a lock in the another might be another might be I don't you know Joe DiMaggio Joe DiMaggio only played 13 seasons yeah, but that's he played till his mid thirties, but he lost he lost three seasons. Right, I'm just commenting. He only played thirteen seasons. Right, yeah. right, right. But did it was they give not people. Did they give people dispensation, special dispensation for war service, wartime? Yeah, he lost his three, two to three best years, 42, 40, you know, 43, 44, 45. Um, that wasn't a good thing for DiMaggio. Or, no, or, or, Ted, or, or Ted, Williams. Ted Williams. Or, well, Ted Williams twice, yeah. and twice. Ted Williams lost five. Look, Ted Williams would have had seven hundred home runs. 4,000 hits. He would have been, he would have been, he's considered the greatest hitter of all time, but he would have had the numbers 
he would have had 700 home runs and 4,000 hits. He would have been Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. Yeah. So, guys, before we end up here, I want to ask you one baseball question. Did y'all see that Wall Street Journal article I sent around about the coaching staff with the Giants? It was written about last Mm -hmm. season as well. The the Journal jumped on it this season, but they really are doing things different over there with their coaching staff, bringing in people from untraditional backgrounds. And some think that, I mean, last year they were a big surprise, right? Nobody expected them to win their division. And they've continued to play well this year. Do you think there's something to this? I mean, is this, is it, and is this going to catch on? I, I, I want to praise them for it, but I'm naive. I don't really know. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, I, I don't know enough to know whether it's like, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting and novel idea, but whether it's specific to the people that they're doing it with, as opposed to the idea itself, like, is it replicatable with any personnel or is there something, is it kind of just part of a whole package? It, that would be know, my caution about, you know, uh, thinking about it for other teams. I have two things. There are two resources that are valuable and, uh, and cheap. One is coaches. The other is statisticians. The more, the better. <laughs> and I'll just say quickly, why not have coaches that can help people specialize on various aspects of things? Somebody might work on running. Someone might work on fielding. Someone might work on pitching against lefties, righties, et cetera. I think more coaches can help people specialize. Yes. Interesting. All right. Well, it'll be an interesting uh, pattern to observe uh, over time in Major League Baseball. All right, guys, that's been three quarters. We've still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the fourth quarter of this week's show. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. It is playoff hockey season, and so we are talking playoff hockey in this segment, we're welcome back to the show. A guest from a few years ago, the pre pre pandemic life, Mike Kelly. Mike is a hockey analyst, focuses on analytics. Actually, he works with the NHL Network, works with Sports Logic. He's a great follow on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Mike Kelly NHL at Mike Kelly NHL. Mike, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Good to be chatting with you as well. Look, we're uh, halfway through the second round, and all the series are 2-2. This is a good thing, right? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, most most are 2-2, uh, a, a couple 3-1. But it, it's, been, it's been funny because a lot of these series are playing close in terms of games, like you say. Um, but there's been massive swings and inconsistencies within series, which is really fascinating to me. Um, you know, you think well, about so tell, Tampa- tell us about that. It's something that jumps out to me. I, I'm a Kyle Dubas fan, so I follow yeah. the Leafs. And, you know, they go against the, the, the defending champs, Lightning. They have a big first win. I think, well, they're going to walk this. And then the Lightning have a big – and then game three, they have a big win. And then Lightning and big in game four. Isn't it unusual to see such multi-game victories reversed back and forth like that? Or, or am I just not – No, it is. And it's not just that series either. It, it has been interesting that way. Um, you know, Edmonton, LA, kind of similar with two games that have really gone in one direction in terms of, of how these teams are playing. And, you know, the Tampa-Toronto one, it's fascinating because it seems like Tampa Bay can't get it done unless their backs are against the wall. You know, the last three playoffs, they're 16-0 and following a loss. It's unbelievable. And wow. Toronto, it seems like they, they can't get it going when they have an opportunity to put their foot on somebody's neck. And, and that goes back several years as well. Uh, well-documented, you know, 3-1 lead against Montreal last year, they blew. The mm-hmm. Boston 4-1 lead in the third period of Game 7 that they blew. So um, it, it has been pretty interesting that anytime I think I've got a beat on how a series is going, 
it'll just go completely the other direction. Is that because the Leafs are cursed, Mike? Is that is that the best explanation for that? Yeah, well, we if you watch the Amazon documentary, you've heard the word demons be thrown around. There's demons <laughs> under their bed and in their head and their car. There's demons everywhere. So I don't know. You know what? Tampa Bay, they played with a lot of urgency. Uh, that's how I expect them to play all the time. Uh, it hasn't happened. What what I have trouble understanding is how Toronto, with an opportunity to go home three to one after you've dominated two out of three games, they completely laid an egg. The New York Rangers laid an egg and now they're down three games to one. Um, uh, hard to understand. Mike, uh, let's do a little bit more team by team. So Shane's Calgary Flames are, are not just in it, but, but have been looking good in general. What can you tell us about the West? And he's been pulling for this battle of, Battle Alberta. of Al- Alberta. Yeah. Edmonton, Calgary, possible matchup. What prospects? Both 2-2 two, two series, so it's still very much in play. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, I'd love to see it. I think everyone in Canada would love to see it. We know what that rivalry has been like, and we know those teams do not like each other. Those cities have a good rivalry. If you want to get into the Canadian Football League, all sorts of stuff. So um, it'd be great. The Flames, I like them as a, as a potential cup. Uh, favorite and I think I've rated them a little higher than a lot of other analysts maybe I'll be right maybe I'll be wrong we'll see but I I look at that team and I I always try to find where are the soft spots in a team and where can you exploit them and Calgary has very few and Dallas has been playing them tough and you know it was it was tough for Calgary to score in the first three games so much of that though is Jake Ottinger The, the Stars are typically a very good defensive team they've played well defensively not better than Calgary, though, in terms of expected goals against what they're allowing. The Flames just couldn't beat this guy. Well, they finally break it open. Um, I think they've outplayed Dallas by a, a good enough margin to be very confident, if I'm a Flames fan, that they're going to get this thing done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess to what extent in your experience do you kind of sort of see, especially in these opening rounds, as to, uh, how, how much you predict things tend to kind of go as chalk you know that the sort of favorite team wins or not I think you pointed out a real kind of aspect which makes I think the hockey playoffs much more predictable compared to say for example the basketball playoffs because even if a team is kind of dominating play you know it's a little bit of the soccer effect even a team that's dominating play unless the goals are actually you know the puck's going in the net they won't necessarily that won't necessarily translate into a victory and so do you kind of see in general these opening rounds of the playoffs as quite unpredictable, even if you have like a matchup, say, for example, like, you know, I guess the Panthers, you know, the Panthers against Capitals should be kind of a, a very lopsided matchup. But here they are tied to two. So, yeah, two interesting points there that I'd bring up. A goalie can completely throw a series in one direction or the other. Uh, it's it's incredible. It like a quarterback in football, the amount of importance on that position. You're seeing it, um, you know, in, in different series. You look at the Rangers-Penguin series. The Shesterkin's going to win the Vesna Trophy. And the Penguins are playing Louis Domingue, their third-string goalie, and they're winning three games to one. This is because, <laughs> largely, the Rangers defensively have been a disaster. Um, the last game was unbelievable. Gerard Gallant called them soft repeatedly in, in the postgame. Um, the pe- the, so the inner slot area, I talk about it a lot. It's a diamond-shaped area. Uh, that our company has identified where half the goals in the league are scored. Critically important to get there to score goals. Okay, hello. Where where on the ice is this diamond? In front of the crease. So uh, kind of goal posts, it goes out a little bit, and then diamonds into the middle uh, in between the hash marks, okay. if you can kind of try to visualize that. Net front area, really. Mm-hmm. Um, not, a, not a large area, but where literally half the goals get scored. So it, it's a critical area to defend and to get to. The Penguins outshot the Rangers 16 to nothing from there. 
in game four. You don't see that. That that is a as bad a beating as you can give a team. So Shasurkin, yeah, you know, he got pulled again, but this is the impact of goaltending, the impact. That's not his fault, right? When that's happening. So how does that happen? I think about, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've barely got any hockey chops. My kid to bear with me. My hockey chops go from like early nineties Sabres life. Right. So Dave Andrechuk, was he the Andrechuk? That was the big one. They traded him to the Leafs. He would just kind of park himself in front of the goal. Yeah. Is that the way teams kind of dominate that inner slot is, or are there other ways of, of doing it? You see more of that in the playoffs In the playoffs, you see more goals get scored, um, with you know two guys on the inside you call it you know get two guys to the net try to outnumber defenders in front of the net but the way the game's played today with you you can't what you used to be able to do is take a two by four of a hockey stick and cross check a guy in the back repeatedly till he falls down in front of the net can't do that anymore (laughs) you also can't hook guys hands there's a lot less obstruction so what you see now is a lot more kind of pop in general is a lot more popping in and out of that area. Um, but you can also stand there and not take the same beating. It's such a skill game. Now defensemen move up and down in the offensive zone, moving the puck. Um, there's a lot more fluidity to it. So there's a lot of different ways to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so a huge had, important area. But you, you would be attributing in, in this case of this big disparity between Pittsburgh and, and, and uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the Rangers, you're more yeah. attributing kind of that disparity to kind of defense, essentially, you know, kind of bad defensive proportion of performance on the part of the Rangers, as opposed to some kind of, you oh, know, yeah. strategy, offensive strategy on the part of the Pittsburgh. A hundred percent. You know, I, I know there's no video. Uh, it's not like we can roll in highlights here so I can make a point, but Jake Gensel, his goal, he walked to the front of the net uncontested. Um, Jeff Carter deflection goal off a of face off centerman didn't tie him up. Just real basic stuff um, that a coach it would drive a coach nuts. And you can't get outshot by that, that number from there. I mean, it's just, uh, it's a zero path to victory if that happens. Why would it bounce back and forth so much in a series? You're, you tweeted a couple of days ago about the Leafs lightning that these, that we're saying on this inner slot idea, because as you said, it mm-hmm. seems to be a vital area of the ice. In the two wins that the Leafs have had, they've had 20, they've outshot the lightning 22 to five from this inner slot in the two times the lightning of one, they've outshot the Leafs 18 to seven. Why would it bounce around like that within the same series? That's what's difficult to understand. And it it, series by series, there would be different reasons. Um, But to see that much of a disparity as you talk about is very unusual. And, you know, I think about the first game that Toronto played and they won convincingly, they were way faster in their pace of play, skating, everything. And they were just getting to those spots way quicker. Um, Tampa Bay in the last game, they played with all kinds of urgency, forecheck, physical. Uh, they they kind of did the complete opposite in, in terms of, you know, what was costing them in the first game. How does it happen game to game? It's, it's difficult for me to say um, how one team can come out really flat and one team can come out with a ball of energy. You would expect both teams to come out with a ball of energy all the time, but we, we know it just doesn't happen that way. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it is very unusual to see those kind of massive swings in, in terms of being able to produce shots from those critical spots. Mike, when I watch NBA playoffs, like last night, the, we, this, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Last night was game four of the Celtics Bucks series. And they're just beating the hell out of each other. It always blows me away in the NBA how they, it's just a war of attrition to make it through the playoffs. I, I usually think of playoff hockey as being higher energy, but I don't know enough to think of it as being more physical. There's a great analyst at the athletic and I'm going to butcher Dom's last name, but Don Lis, Lisizen, 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 
something like that. I'm sorry, Dom, but he talks <laughs> about heavy hockey. He's, mm-hmm. he's hypothesized and done crunched some numbers and he claims that playoff hockey is heavier, both in the, the, the lineups that do well and also the style of play being more physical. Do, do you buy this analysis? Is this one way? Is, 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 it a, is this a good way to think about NHL playoff hockey? Well, it's true. Um, I did some pretty extensive research on this last year with a coach. Um, the question that I get the most often from coaches is two words, and it's the same two words, what wins. That's what they're interested <laughs> in. Um, so we, we actually went through it and looked at the last four playoff years and broke down every bit of data uh, that, that my company tracks and to see what goes up, what goes down, how much, you know, how large are the deviations, what is meaningful, what isn't. Um, so you come out with, and, and any analysts that, that work with data, I'm sure have, have come to similar conclusions when they do these kind of things, you come up with things that you expect, right? Teams with great goaltending and teams that finish on a lot of their chances tend to do well. Well, no kidding. Uh, you, you can't really make that actionable. So if you're talking to a coach, what can you make actionable? What can you say? We know this exists. We know you have to either be able to do it or be ready for it. The things that go up year over year in the NHL playoffs are dump in rates. So how often a team dumps the puck in as opposed to carrying it into the offensive zone. This is because things get tighter defensively. Um, Puck battles go up. There's a correlation there between dumping a puck in because what usually happens after that, or oftentimes is a puck battle. That's heavy hockey. Hitting goes up. Um, there, There are those things that are associated with quote unquote, a heavy brand of hockey that do go up year over year in the postseason. Ultimately, still, talent, you know, is, is a huge factor. Uh, you can't build a, a, line, a lineup full of fourth-line grinders and expect to win. But it's a component that you have to be able to have. And you look at kind of third lines that have morphed into more scoring and checking lines now than just checking lines. They've been really important for a lot of successful teams over the last several years. Tampa Bay's third line was critical in their two Stanley Cup wins. Um, you can look at teams having success now that have a really good third line that can check but also provide offense. So uh, heavy hockey does exist. It is a, a, a part of um, the way that the game is played in the postseason. Uh, related to postseason analytics, this is kind of a fantasy, perennial fantasy question of ours. We observe that there's no bigger change in play in sports than playoff overtime. This is hockey playoff overtime. It, you can just feel and, and see, it seems, the change in the pace and the energy. And so it's almost like, you know, you should have an alert on your phone for when a playoff NHL playoff series goes to overtime. Oh, yeah. so you can get on it. Uh, you, you work and you work with a company who has these analytics. What do we know? Does anyone have the observation of like some measure of the energy expended or the speed of skated or something that shows this change in playoff hockey? Are we just kidding ourselves? It's not really. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I think if you were looking at, you know, puck and player tracking data, for instance, where you can see how much a guy skates, how fast they skate, um, you could get some really fascinating information from there. That data is still relatively new. Um, the first year the NHL's really made this, you know, available on broadcasts. And uh, you certainly need more of a sample size than this year's playoffs um, in terms of getting full game data to kind of compare those differences between overtime and, uh, and regulation time. Um, I don't, I don't have a a great answer on that, you know, from a data standpoint, certainly I can give you my ideas from what my eyes see, but from a a data standpoint, I think we need to collect some more of that information um, to start digging into it and seeing where the biggest differences lie. Well, this goes to the state of analytics and hockey update us on who has access to what data and it's varied across sports. Of course, baseball has always been quite democratic about this, 
football is weird in that they have they've got it out to the teams, but they don't make it to the public. But for these big data competitions that the NFL has, has led, it has made a big difference in the community, actually. So there's this weird kind of hybrid model in the NFL. Yeah. What is the model with NHL? Is it just we there are no publicly available data or, or this year is the first year that it's available? So the NHL with its puck and player tracking, um, they have started to make they, they've tinkered around with it on broadcasts in the past. Things like all star games where they've showcased it a little bit. Uh, this is the first year where you're really seeing it regularly on broadcasts. How fast does a guy skate? How much distance does he cover? Um you know, again, we need, we need a sample to understand how much of this is really meaningful as well. Like I can think of guys, I bet you Mario Lemieux didn't cover a ton of ground in his career. Pretty effective <laughs> player, right? So, um, oh, with that guy's reach, he covered half the ice just by standing <laughs> still, actually. But exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's, you know, we, we need a sample of, of some of the newer data to really start to understand it and, and place the proper weighting and meaning on certain things. And we'll get that as, as it, we continue. Um, but, but, yeah, but is that true, just, Mike? Will, will, will we get it? And who's going to get it? I mean, the teams have it right now. They get track. Do they get tracking data for both themselves and their opponents? For a while, the NFL only gave teams their own data. I believe that the teams get uh, the tracking data for that. Yes. Although I, I, uh, I, I can't say for certain, but I believe so. Um, okay. Our company, for example, we work with the majority of NHL teams, 25 plus teams in the league as a third party data supplier. Um, and so we supply information to, to NHL clubs. Um, so the teams themselves are getting, you know, some degree of the puck and player tracking data, uh, data from third-party companies, if they so choose. Uh, and like I said, many work with us. Um, there are teams that will be collecting internally their own uh, data and, and building out their own models, et cetera. And there's, of course, what's publicly available. Um, you know, Natural Stat Trick, Money Puck are, are good websites where fans can go um, take, you know, NHL play-by-play data that's collected and, um, you know, uh, stored well in a pretty easy to see and use way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's kind of where things are at right now uh, in terms of hockey and sport logic as well. One of my big responsibilities there is working with our media clients. So we work with a number of um, networks in the U.S. and in Canada, and you'll see if you're a hockey fan, um, a lot of our data throughout the broadcast as well. Well, t- tell me about that, Mike. So does, is there still Sunday night hockey in Canada? Is that still like a national institution? Hockey night in Canada, Saturday hockey night. night. Saturday night. Is yeah. Don Cherry the announcer for that? Is he still yeah, there? No. Don, uh, no. He was, uh, he was removed a couple of years ago. <laughs> he was yeah. removed. Okay, that sounds sensitive. All right. So, well, I, can't, I couldn't imagine him being big on analytics. And just kind of, it's a generational thing sometimes. So, where in these broadcasts is the interest or enthusiasm kind of where is it? What's the state of play from a broadcast perspective in analytics? It varies. Um, we've made great progress. I, I joined sport logic seven years ago and my background before that was in communications and in broadcasting. Um, I've worked as a producer. I've put shows together. Um, I've been a host on, on uh, broadcasts uh, now an analyst. So I've got a pretty good varied background on how the whole thing works and, and how to make it work. And I think the biggest bridge, and this goes beyond hockey, this is sports, this is business as well, is how do you take the raw data and give it to the decision maker in a way that they're comfortable using it, they understand it, it's very clear, that's how you get buy-in. And you know, for us, we, we work with more clients than we ever have, um, a dominant foothold in terms of a company like us working in the media. And the reason why is because we've been able to effectively bridge that gap from 
you know, you're going to give somebody who's maybe a, an ex player who's never really cared much about numbers data that might be interesting. They're not really going to know what to do with it. What mm-hmm. we pride ourselves on is providing insights and taking that step from here's data to yeah. here's what you're probably going to be talking about, or here's what you've told us you want to be talking about. Here's how you can use a data driven angle to that story to really punch it up. And Maybe you're talking about the fact that, you know what? Wow, Pittsburgh, they outplayed the Rangers in game four. Um, they got a lot of good scoring chances, right? Well, what if you can say you outshot them from the most critical area, 16 to nothing in the game? Right. Exclamation point, right? That's, right? that's kind of what we like to do um, and how we've had success in doing what we're doing. And my goal was really to change the way that the game um, is being discussed because I got background into how the game was being evaluated at the team level. I've worked with players from a development standpoint. I've worked with agents on contract negotiations. I've done some projects with coaches. I see how it's been working there. And it wasn't really the same as how it gets talked about a lot. So there's great value in the eye test and experience and all those things. And none of what we're doing will ever replace that, but it's a part of the conversation that's necessary and important. And that's kind of what we've tried to do is just blend it in to add value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mike, can you, well, Shane wants to jump in on this. So Shane. Well, I kind of, I guess maybe along that kind of angle, but more at the sort of like team level, you know, we have these two historically kind of dominant teams this year, this season that have entered the playoffs, the Florida Panthers and the Colorado Avalanche. And even before the playoffs started, I mean, I've always considered the hockey playoffs very random. So I'm like, oh, it, either one of these two teams has a chance to be like the Tampa Bay of this year where they have a historically dominant regular season, then just completely flame out in the first round. Colorado absolutely breezed through their first round. They're the only uh, team to sweep, whereas Florida's mired in this 2-2 tie now with Washington. Is there something in the analytics? Is there something like, could that have been predicted? Was it just rat? Is it it really just Florida got unlucky, hit a hot goaltender? Or is there something kind of, do the analytics kind of say something about these teams, you know, which of these teams, you know, will kind of sort of struggle early on the playoffs versus not? Uh, I think there's great value in the analytics and doing that. Um, you know, last year I went eight for eight with my first round picks. Uh, it was a lot of luck. I'll be honest. Um, (laughs) like nobody can say they've got a perfect model or recipe. Right. And I'm certainly not that arrogant to think I do, but, and I'm not doing that great this year. Um, but Florida, Washington to me was going to be a battle. I thought Florida would probably take it in six, but it'd be tough for the reasons that, that we've seen play out that, Washington is jamming up the neutral zone. Florida's the most dangerous team off the rush in the league. And Washington's not giving them those chances. And it's been hard for Florida to adapt. They've found ways to break out here and there, you know, varying their entries and, um, and kind of trying to build a lead and then open the game up a little bit. But I saw how that could be difficult. Colorado, I mean, Nashville, they're, they're in two different classes, right? And you get down to your third goalie. It's just way too much uh, to overcome. Um, but I, I've been, you know, using the same method where I, I, I think I'm right more than I'm wrong. Um, I've been certainly wrong about things as well. And they just don't play out the way that you think they will. Um, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh's playing its best hockey in a couple months. The Rangers are playing their worst hockey in a couple months. I, I couldn't predict that. I, I thought the Rangers would win the series and, and maybe they will, but they're in tough shape now. So that's why I love hockey though, because it, it's got to be the most difficult to accurately forecast, especially when it comes to the playoffs. There's so many critical variables that you can just never be sure of. 
Yeah, I feel like it almost links up to kind of what how Cade started out our whole discussion with talking about how playoff hockey is is, is fundamentally kind of a, a little bit of a different style and like, you know, different sort of things kind of maybe translate into success at a higher higher probability, like uh-huh. this kind of heavy hockey type strategies. And it could be that that's part of what messes up, you know, this, you know, our, you know, just kind of taking, oh, this is the best team in the regular season and translating playoff success to them because the, the game itself kind of fundamentally changes. And there's sort of, you know, certain certain teams that are dominant the regular season can adapt, sort of have a style that adapts to that and certain teams don't. Yeah. And you know what? I'll use uh, a couple examples and, and you guys can let me know what you think about other sports as well, because I think it's probably relative and you, you're probably more familiar, familiar than me with certain other sports. But there's this huge push towards offense this year. We've seen more goals than we've seen, I think, since the mid 90s. And so it's like, OK, everyone play offensive. I think there's even more value now in being good defensively if you can be right. Um, exploit an area that, that, that other teams may not be as strong in. And, you know, I look at the Islanders under Barry Trotz and how they got to two straight conference finals. And he took a team that allowed more goals than anybody in his first year. And they allowed the fewest of anybody in his first year on the job. That's there's real coaching impact and value there. The, I was talking to a coach a week ago and he was telling me about Carolina and we're talking, he's like, you know, the way they move the puck around, they get two guys on the inside. They shoot from the perimeter deflections, rebounds, puck recoveries. It's a real quote unquote playoff brand of hockey, something that can translate well when things like the rush get taken away oftentimes. Uh, then I look at a team like Vegas that, you know, they've, they made runs in the playoffs, but who's knocked them out? Dallas, elite defensive team. Montreal, a team that at the time was playing great defensively and great goaltending as well. Vegas is not a team that has guys that really win around the front of the net. They do a lot in the perimeter, a lot of skill, a lot of good things that lead to a lot of success. But you get stuck against a really good defensive team in the postseason and you don't win that inner slot battle. You're not getting those inside shots. You're giving some more up. That's hard. That's where I think matchups, um, you know, and we were just talking about this a second ago, right, are critical. The the Capitals are not a great matchup for Florida. Mm -hmm. Like Toronto might be a better team, quote unquote, maybe more talented. That brand of hockey is probably better for Florida to play against than what Washington's doing to them. Hmm. It's fascinating when matchups do and don't matter. It's, it's something we people often think they see in football. It's really hard to see it in the analytics. It's, it may be there, but it's really hard to measure and get at. But we know in basketball it matters, and people pay a lot of attention to it when it comes to betting basketball. I, it makes sense that it would, make the, it would do the same with Mike. It would do the same with the NHL. Um, Mike, some of those matchups would be based on analytics. Like you talked about the you know, Florida getting out in the, in rushes. And so that's something you can measure, but you talked about the caps being um, kind of clogging that again, that presume that's something you can measure. Mm-hmm. What, what could we as kind of naive hockey watchers, how do we know when teams are more analytically savvy? So for example, in their styles of play in the NBA that correspond with more analytical savvy, their styles of play in the NFL, even in college football as well with a little bit more openness to analytics and, and, and unconventional thinking. Are there things on the ice in the NHL that indicate that as well? I know that, you know, a lot of analytics is on the personnel side. That's a different animal, but in, in game, how would we know if we're watching a team that's a little more analytically savvy than not? So hockey, I think it's really interesting to me because it's the most chaotic of the sports we're talking about and how it's played. Um, I think it's more dependent on 
each individual, the, the, the compilation of your team, maybe than any other sport. So again, we can peel the onion and say, okay, well, how do you win? You score more goals than your opponent. How do you get more goals? You have better expected goals, goal probability on your shots. Well, how do you get those? You get to the critical areas more. You continue to peel it back analytically, mm-hmm. right? In terms of how, your style of play, I don't know that there's one approach that's the way to do it um, because teams are different. They're, they're built differently. Mm-hmm. Florida wants to play fast. Uh, they've got a lot of guys that can do that. They A great analytics signing that they made was Carter Verhage, who uh, they got for a million bucks a year on a two-year deal. He was a group six free agent. Um, provided massive value for them. He's very fast. He's a great four-checker. He creates off the rush. That fits into how they want to play. Mm-hmm. Um he might not be as successful in a, in a, another team's system. So that exists and that's real. Um, Carolina, you know, the guy that runs their analytics department, Eric Tulski, is a, he's a rocket scientist. He, he's incredibly highly educated. Mm-hmm. Um, Carolina's a team that dumps the puck in more than anybody. And that would fly, in, you know, against the convention of what some in the analytics community think is the most effective way to create offense, which is to try to carry the puck in. Right. But there's an offensive and a defensive component to that as well. Turnovers. Um, so there's a lot to evaluate. I think the teams that do it best understand what players can provide maximum value. Florida's done a great job of that. They have a good analytics department. They have a progressive general manager. Um, they made some really astute you know, player acquisitions that fit in the mold of how they want to play. Um, I think teams that can do that most effectively, it, it, it's a, you know, if you've got 18 players, it's a puzzle and you got to make it all work. It's not just about, War model up and down. Let's go. Um, I think with hockey, that's very true. Okay. Well, listen, give us a bit more of a rundown. You mentioned we, we have heard that Carolina has one of the best analytics groups out there. You've just mentioned Florida. We're big fans of the Leafs. They were pretty early on this, I think, by most accounts. Who else would you say are strong? Because we have our like Moneyball teams, you know, we like to see the Moneyball teams do well. So who else should we be pulling for? Of course, in addition to Shane's Flames, regardless of how advanced they are, who else should we be pulling for if we want to pull for analytics forward teams? Yeah, well, um, I I can't say much about which teams I think are using it the best. Um, I have some insight there, given again who I work for, but uh, it's not something I can get into. Um, or, you, or even just publicly, you know, the publicly available information better. So you talk about a progressive GM in Florida. That's probably something that's written about. Yeah. What teams what that have the biggest departments um, that certainly seem to value analytics uh, a lot. Uh, Toronto would fall into that. I believe they have the biggest department. Florida mm-hmm. um, has brought some people in. Uh, Buffalo hired Sam Ventura. He's brought a couple people in. Uh, he was with yes. Pittsburgh before and had success there. And it was very bright. Um um, you know, Tampa Bay with Michael Peterson, he's fantastic. Uh, uh, I know the person who, who brought him into Tampa Bay about a decade ago. Um, everyone has great things to say there. Um, you know, those are ones in the West. Nobody in the West? Yeah. Uh, Colorado's got a really bright uh, guy in Eric Parnas there, and, and uh, they, they do some good work um, from, from what I can see. Um, the West, the West, the West. I'm just kind of going off the top of my head here on which teams have, I think there's, so there's teams that have, a, you know, departments, there's teams that might have one or two people, um, you know, believe it or not, there's teams that don't really have a, what I can tell anyways, a dedicated um, person that they might split duties um, in, in some ways, but. Isn't that um, remarkable? Just remarkable. In 2022, 
hockey's still going this way uh, for sure. And, you know, obviously with baseball, basketball, football are, are farther ahead. Um, and technology is part of it. Right. And, and so hockey has been playing, you know, catching up a little bit in that respect, but it, it's continuing to grow. Uh, there's definitely growth and, and more buy-in is every year that, that goes by. Mm-hmm. And do you kind of feel like with this new kind of, yeah, I mean, I agree that data, uh, rel- relevant data is probably a big part of this kind of, you know, the, the delay um, with this kind of player and puck tracking finally kind of really coming online, do you kind of feel like that might accelerate actually kind of the uptake of analytics, the, up, the, the hiring of analytics people? Are we kind of entering in kind of like a, an even kind of more rapid wave of that? It better. Um, well, the amount of information that's coming in now uh, and will be, continue to be coming in with the puck and player tracking data, it's massive. Um, forget the use of it first, just storing it, um, cleaning it, uh, all the things that just go into the data process is a massive undertaking. Uh, the need to have engineers, um, data analysts, a department really. Um, I think we'll get to a point where every team does have a dedicated department of several people. Uh, like I said, it's not the case yet. Um, or you can you know, choose not to and, and not uh, fully benefit from the information that's going to be available. You'll be at a competitive dis- disadvantage if you do that. Right. So a uh, couple last questions for you in the world of analytics for hockey right now, what do you think the most interesting questions are? What are the hard questions? What's the frontier? Um, what are people trying to solve or get some insight into? Well, we're, we're going more as, you know, um, the publicly collected data um, gets a little more. Um, that's the word I'm looking for. I guess the publicly collected data as more becomes available and it gets a little more granular, you're going to start looking at more details as opposed to just what happens when a team or a player is on the ice, but what are they contributing personally? Uh, these are micro stats, the kind of things that, you know, I've, me and my company uh, have been tracking for a long time. Uh, you'll see more of that in the public work. Mm-hmm. Marrying that between what happens on the ice is, is where you find the value because right. neither one explains the situation fully. Um, yep. But being able to, do that effectively and, and being able to extrapolate actionable, meaningful insights, I think is where there's still such a massive competitive advantage, both publicly and with the organizations themselves. Agreed fully. It seems like it, especially given how nascent it is in hockey, there's a ton that's going to happen. Do you have a pet theory or hypothesis of something we're going to learn about player, a way a player contributes that we, maybe don't understand fully or something that's undervalued or overvalued that's going to be revealed with these kinds of micro data. Yeah. You know, defensive impact is something that is still certainly uh, publicly still very tough to pin down. Um, Even with, you know, micro data, it's tough to fully understand. I think with the puck and player tracking data, uh, as that gets built out, um, I'm sure it will become publicly available uh, at some point, I imagine. Um, that then we're going to start understanding where players are on the ice, like not just the events around the puck, but also where they are on the ice. Um, uh, are, are they in the appropriate defensive position? How far away from their check are they on goals, on chances, et cetera? I think we're going to start to really understand where players are adding or, or not adding value on the defensive side of the puck away from the puck, um, okay. just as opposed to just what's happening with the puck. And that'll, that'll be significant. Um, it's something that, you know, has been eye tested forever. Um, and, and, you know, people certainly have ideas on, but being able to quantify spacing, 
defensive impact, lanes, passing, shooting, um, that in addition to the event data, uh, put those two together. I think you're going to start getting some pretty interesting conclusions. That, that's great. Uh, listen, we didn't let you go, but can you, can you give us a pick for the matchup in the finals? Is that legal in your line of work or no? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, um, I mean, Colorado looks like a wagon right now. I I've always, okay. I've, I've been kind of harping Calgary. I'm going to, I'll stay with Calgary because I think Colorado's got a tough one in either Minnesota or St. Louis. That's a tough path. Um, I'll stick with Calgary in the West and I picked Florida at the start of the year. They made me look good all year. Um, I know Shane likes the Calgary pick. That's good. (laughs) Know your audience, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, you're definitely preaching the He's our only Canadian, Mike. He's our only Canadian. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. I'll, I'll stay with Calgary. Let's go uh, Calgary, Florida. All right. That sounds like fun. Uh, listen, Mike, thanks for making time for us, especially in the middle of playoffs. You have just improved our understanding and our enjoyment of the NHL play- playoffs. Much appreciated. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. You bet. Once again, Mike Kelly, hockey analyst, analytics-oriented, works with the NHL Network and Sports Logic. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Kelly NHL at Mike Kelly NHL. That has been two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week on SiriusXM for Shane Jensen, who's been in here with me this last quarter for Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow, for Matty Dats, the boss man, for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>